This is Guns and Butter. And so when you look at when you look at the, the hikes in fuel and you look at the the hikes also in food staples and in the price of water, you come up with the conclusion that um, that the basic means of survival of human beings on this planet are being jeopardized, uh, not as a result of, of scarcity, not as a result of any lack of, of resources or capabilities, but as a result of a deliberate process of, of market manipulation. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Chosadovsky. Today's show, the global food and fuel crisis. Michel Chosadovsky is professor of economics at the University of Ottawa and director of the Center for Research on Globalization. The Center for Research on Globalization is an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research webpage at www.globalresearch.ca publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Chosodovsky is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism, as well as numerous articles. Today we focus on two of his most recent articles, Global Famine and the Global Crisis, Food, Water, and Fuel, Three Fundamental Necessities of Life in Jeopardy. Michel Chosodovsky, welcome. It's great to be on the, on the program. There are food riots globally. The price of gasoline is skyrocketing. Truckers are on strike in Europe blocking roads. Is the world facing a shortage of food and fuel? How do you account for these developments? The world is not facing a shortage of food and fuel. Uh, in fact, quite the opposite. The hikes in both fuel and basic food staples is the product of market manipulation. Uh, more specifically, it's the result of speculative um, transactions on the mercantile exchanges, Chicago, New York, and London, as well as on the energy market in London. And, and what you have essentially is, is, a, is a procedure or mechanism which is uh, geared towards making money, making profit. It's investment, let's say, in, in speculative instruments in those commodity markets. And uh, what it what it implies in, in very concrete terms is that, uh, that people's livelihood is now a concept on, on, uh, on financial markets. Uh, uh, powerful institutional speculators, uh, uh, financial institutions uh, such as uh, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan, as well as, the, as well as British Petroleum, are able to influence the price of basic commodities and these basic commodities are an essential uh, uh, input into the survival of of uh, human beings namely food fuel and water 
And what about government's role now? Uh, aren't these uh, uh, markets regulated? The markets are not regulated. That is, I think, the distinguishing feature of, of this particular period in history, is that the major Wall Street banks, the, the oil giants, um, not to mention uh, the water giants, including Suez, Veolia, Bechtel, are in a position to take control over, over these fundamental variables without government interference. And so that you have a situation, for instance, in the United States where gasoline prices are, are skyrocketing. Um, we have um, uh, the barrel of oil at $130 uh, per barrel. But if you look at the cost of production of producing a barrel of oil, they do not exceed $15 for, for conventional uh, crude and perhaps up to 30 for, for for the tar sands. So that, in effect, we have a situation where, um, where governments no longer regulate prices in accordance with supply and cost of production, and they're just letting the price go fly high. Um, and, and, and that is through speculative manipulation. But I think it's, it's far more serious than that, because not only do they not regulate, but they allow uh, the media, uh, not to mention the scholars and the economists, to uh, present totally biased interpretations of, of this phenomenon. It, in, in other words, it's not only the absence of state regulation, but it's the fact that the state will say, well, we can't do anything about it. Um, uh, it's due to uh, supply and demand. And, and then you have, you have other aspects of this, of this propaganda campaign. Um, the main consensus is that people are responsible individually for high fuel prices um, because they consume too much, and that in view of the, of, uh, the debate on climate change, global warming, uh, it's up to individual consumers to adjust their spending habits accordingly. So that is the main thrust of the critique that may be, you know, that is going right through the media at this moment. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that the fuel hikes are not only contributing to impoverishing people worldwide, but they're also uh, creating conditions of uh, large-scale bankruptcy, particularly of small and medium-sized enterprises. They are uh, choking the trucking industry, which operates on a very small, at least it, it operates on, on, a, on a relatively small profit margin, um, so that the trucking industry is affected uh, the, the whole process of international trade is affected. Um, manufacturing, of course, is affected by these high f fuel costs. And, and, of course, agriculture, the production of, of basic food staples as well. And so when you look at, it, when you look at the, the hikes in fuel and you look at the, the hikes also in food staples and in the price of water, you come up with the conclusion that, um, that the basic means of survival of human beings on this planet are being jeopardized, uh, not as a result of, of scarcity, not as a result of any lack of, of resources or capabilities, but as a result 
of the deliberate process of, of market manipulation. Uh, I'm not suggesting that those who speculate on commodity markets um, intentionally uh, are intentionally involved in depressing the standard of living of people worldwide. Uh, it's a money-making uh, operation. They're speculating with a view to making windfall profits uh, on the spiraling um, price increases. Uh, but when you you analyze it at a political level, you come up with the conclusion that uh, the spiraling prices of food, water, and fuel, which constitute fundamental necessities of life uh, on this planet, uh, they are in jeopardy, and they are, in effect, threatening, uh, threatening uh, people all over the world, leading simultaneously to the outbreak of famines. Um, this is not something which is uh, abstract in any regard. Uh, we have millions of people around the world who are already on the borderline of poverty. In fact, um, in fact, if you look at developing countries, it's probably the majority of the population which is, which is below the poverty line, even though World Bank statistics tend to grossly underestimate the percentage of people who are poor and undernourished. Uh, I, in, in the, in the 1980s and 70s, I undertook analysis of, of undernourishment in Latin America, and we came up, and, and we were a group of, of specialists, of professionals working on this. We came up with uh, figures of up to 70% of the population, which did not meet minimal calorie and protein requirements. And even if you make that estimate in, in the United States of America, you'll find that it would be most probably of the order of 20%. But when you look at the groups which are vulnerable, namely the masses of poor people who are already impoverished on the borderline, um, an increase in food and fuel prices will literally lead them into a situation of starvation. And that is what is happening. It's the elimination of the poor through starvation deaths. It's a dramatic process. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, poverty as, as we normally understand it. It's, it's a process where the poor, in effect, are being eliminated through starvation deaths. You have written that in 2008, there was a bumper crop of cereal grains and I'd also like to quote from your most recent article, The Global Crisis, Food, Water, and Fuel. You say, famines in the age of globalization are the result of policy. Famine is not the consequence of a scarcity of food, but in fact quite the opposite. Global food supplies are used to destabilize agricultural production in developing countries. Could you elaborate? Well... There are two, um, there are two uh, processes which are taking place. Um, historically, starting in the early 80s with the so-called debt crisis, mainly hitting developing countries, a whole series of policy changes were implemented under the auspices of, of IMF World Bank reforms. And one of those um, policies consisted in uh, in deregulating the grain market in individual developing countries and lifting trade barriers, allowing um, 
the large grain producers, Western grain producers, namely the United States, Canada, Australia, and the European Union, to dump their surplus grain on the market of developing countries. Um, whether it's done, it could be done in the form of food aid, or, or it could be done through the, the World Food Program. Um, I mean, this is not something which is new, but the lifting of those restrictions on, on the importation of, of, of grain and the deregulation of the grain market uh, were conducive to destabilizing local-level agriculture, so that countries which were self-sufficient in grain, their, their whole food farming sector was destroyed. I, I can give you examples of countries which were self-sufficient in food, Somalia and Rwanda. Okay? Somalia, Rwanda, Zimbabwe, many countries in Africa, self-sufficient in food, with ability under, under of course, conditions still of poverty and, and, uh, and underdevelopment, but with the ability of meeting uh, the requirements of the local market. So what happens when you, you come in with grain surpluses from the United States uh, uh, at a much lower cost, um, you, you destabilize an existing productive system. That was also done through manipulation. And, and I'll give you an example, because the World Bank Actually, when they implemented this, this uh, liberalization of grain program, they also uh, implemented another measure, which was to increase the domestic price of fuel for domestic trade. So they, they said to the governments, you have to put taxes on, on petroleum products domestically. So what happened is that the domestic price of gasoline was double the price in the United States, and consequently, farmers would not be able to compete in any way with imported uh, grain surpluses. The same thing applied to farm credit. Interest rates went fly high, 20%, 30%, in some cases more than that, as opposed to, um, to interest rates, let's say, in, in, the, in the Western countries. So what happened is that initially, starting in the 80s, there was a process of destabilization of domestic agriculture in a large number of countries. And that included many countries in sub-Saharan Africa, but also take big breadbasket economies like Egypt. Um, India as well, it, its uh, grain production was destabilized. And uh, as a result of that, and, and the, the underlying cause was not scarcity was exactly the opposite. It was because we had surpluses that, uh, that, these, uh, uh, that these domestic uh, agricultural systems were destabilized. So that was the first phase. I'm speaking with Professor of Economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Food and Fuel Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Now, the second phase, I think, is uh, also very dramatic. I should say it's the second process. It has to do with genetically modified seeds. And what happened there is that with the development of genetically modified seeds by large agribusiness firms like Monsanto, um, Arch Daniel Midland, um, developing countries were encouraged 
in some cases obliged to use genetically modified seeds. In some cases, U.S. food aid was granted in the form of genetically modified seeds, where they gave um, kits to agricultural producers and said, okay, you have problems with uh, domestic supply of seeds. Here are seeds that you can use. It's free of charge. They go ahead, they plant them, and then what happens? The whole agricultural cycle is broken, okay, because genetically modified seeds only reproduce themselves um, under certain conditions when you use the, the farm inputs produced by Monsanto, uh, you have to buy the fertilizer, you have to buy the insecticide, the herbicide, which correspond to that particular type of seed. So that the whole process of organic farming and the ability, let's say, of farmers to reproduce their seeds uh, locally, which they've been doing for thousands of years, right from the inception of, of settled agriculture, that process is broken. That is perhaps the most fundamental revolution in the history of agriculture because it is destroying um, organic farming worldwide and it is it is in effect allowing for a handful of biotech conglomerates to take control of agriculture now so that we have to understand all the the various elements one the dumping of of grain surpluses second the impact of genetically modified seeds. And the third is, is the more recent phenomenon of manipulation of global prices of food staples, which has led in the course of the last couple of years to the doubling of, in most cases, the doubling of, of the price of basic, uh, of basic staples, depending on the commodity. But the three main, let's say the three main commodities Staple commodities are rice, wheat, and, and corn. And in, in all cases, if we take the figures from, let's say, um, 2005 up to the present, we're dealing with a doubling. And in some cases, in, in the case of corn, it's a doubling of the price. Uh, in the case of wheat, it's more than a doubling of the price. So that, in effect, what does this mean for people who are uh, on the borderline of poverty. It means that the amount of money they spend on, on uh, buying food has doubled when the price doubles, okay? So that to meet minimum calorie and protein requirements, you require twice as much money as you did previously, but you cannot increase your spending on, on, uh, on food because you're simply, you simply don't have enough money. And... and uh, uh, the irony is that in, in countries where this has happened, um, politicians have virtually, let's say the governments have virtually accepted uh, this. Uh, they haven't, in some cases, they've implemented uh, some uh, emergency distribution programs. But let's address the case of the Philippines. President Gloria Arroyo has said, well, the price of food has doubled. Uh, and then she makes a call on on Filipinos and said, well, you'll simply have to eat 50% uh, less, okay? <laughs> so that the, the call is to reduce your consumption of food in relation to the higher cost of, of staple uh, food commodities. So that the politicians are 
complicit. Why are they complicit? Because they're serving the interests of the, of the financial institutions, the speculators, the biotech conglomerates which control the, the genetically modified seeds and so on. So that is the situation we're in. It's the absence of regulation. Uh, it's the overriding power of these global monopolies which control the political process rather than the other way around. And uh, in this particular case, we're not dealing with, a, with an incident. We're dealing with something which is, which is overwhelming in its consequences because when you increase the price of food globally, let's say in the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, it means that the price of surviving, the cost of surviving worldwide goes up by the amount of the quotation, let's say, on the Chicago Board of Trade. That is what is happening. Uh, but I think that the current crisis, um, the current crisis characterized by these hikes in, in fuel and food prices have to be looked upon in relation to the other dimensions that I mentioned, namely the thrust of genetically modified seeds, which are deadly. They destroy agriculture worldwide. Uh, they impoverish uh, the farmers. And the second aspect, which is still ongoing, uh, is the dumping of grain surpluses, which destroy agriculture in developing countries. So that at the same time, the Western countries want to gain some kind of monopoly control in the supply of grain surpluses, which they will then export to these impoverished countries. Well, now, in all three of these phases that you've uh, discussed, the dumping of grain surpluses in, in other countries, all uh, evolving out of IMF and World Bank policies, etc., the manipulation of prices, the speculation, the genetically modified food organisms, this has all been done consciously, right? It has been done consciously, but it's often... Um not clear to, even to those who implement these measures as to the impacts. Uh, it's part of neoliberal policy to deregulate markets. Uh, I would suggest this is not some kind of Machiavellic plan where you have people saying we have to impoverish the world's population. Uh, what it is, is a, a consensus which says we have to apply free market reforms uh, with a view to improving the standard of living of people around the world, when in fact those free market reforms lead to exactly the opposite results. Um, in, in other words, the people who are implementing these measures, the bureaucrats, the, the economists, and so on, are not always clear as to the, the likely consequences of their acts. Uh, it's a little bit like the Spanish Inquisition. They say, well, we, should, we apply the Spanish Inquisition to make the world safer. And that's the logic. Now, what you're saying is, in effect, it is deliberate. It may not be deliberate. If you ask a World Bank official, is it deliberate? Are you there? Are you impoverishing? You say, oh, no, no. We, our mandate is to reduce poverty. It's, it, it, go and see on our website. But when you, when you confront the same World Bank official and say, well, listen, if you increase the price of food, well, what does that do to the people? Well, he'll say, well, that's just unfortunate, but we have to operate in terms of market values. 
but then you say, well, okay, but the price of fuel uh, uh, is $130 a barrel, and the cost of producing is $10 a barrel. He'd probably say, well, that's a short-run phenomenon. It will eventually costs and, and prices will eventually emerge, you see, because that's what economists teach at the university. Neoliberal ideology tends to camouflage this so-called deliberate process of impoverishment. It, it is deliberate up to point, but you can't say that it's consciously thought out. Okay? But I, I think um, there's another aspect of that, is, is that uh, as far as U.S. foreign policy is concerned, going back to the, to the Nixon administration, uh, Nixon, um, as well as the Ford administration, we should refer to a very important document, which is entitled National Security Study Memorandum 200. And it's called Implications of Worldwide Population Growth for U.S. Security and Overseas Interests. And, and that particular memorandum, uh, which was part of the work of a commission, was published, uh, eventually was published in, in 1974 after the impeachment of, of Richard Nixon uh, following Watergate. Um, Henry Kissinger was the architect of that. And what is disturbing is that uh, this report hints to the role of, um, of famine as an instrument of, of U.S. Um, foreign policy. I, I'll, I'll read a, a section from the report. It doesn't say it textually because obviously you can't say that we want people to be affected by famine because that serves our interests. But it says, quote, on what basis should such food resources then be provided? Would food be considered an instrument of national power? Okay. Will we be forced to make choices as to whom we can reasonably assist? And if so, should population efforts be a criterion for such assistance? Um, and uh, it, it also says, while foreign assistance probably will continue to be forthcoming to meet short-term emergency situations like the threat of mass starvation, it is more questionable whether aid donor countries will be prepared to provide the sort of massive food aid called for by import projections on a long-term continuing basis. So that, in effect, this document is full of hints as to the, as to the role that that large-scale famine and malnutrition can, can create. And, 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 it, and then it also concludes and says that, in fact, um, uh, population control is important to ensure, uh, to protect uh, U.S. Uh, interests as well as uh, the interests of investors. And uh, Kissinger, in, in, the, in the context of, of this uh, particular initiative, is uh, known to have, have said, Quote, control oil and you control nations, control food and you control the people. And that is precisely where we are at this particular juncture. I'm speaking with Professor of Economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Food and Fuel Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Michelle, what would you say to people, and I've had people say this to me before with regard to the skyrocketing fuel prices, 
well, the world is running out of oil. It's peak oil. Well, this doesn't make sense. There's no evidence of peak oil. The, the, the thing is that the figures on oil reserves are generated by the oil companies. And there are lots of reserves of oil and natural gas, which are simply, uh, which are known to these companies, which are not tabulated. Um, we are not running out of fuel. And there are other alternative sources of fuel which are available. What the oil companies uh, have done, they've done two things. They, uh, uh, to sell the idea that, that the price of oil is not unreasonable at $130 a barrel and might even go up to 200 they are saying, well, we're running out of oil. This is supply and demand. Okay? Now, if it was supply and demand, uh, the cost of production would be much higher than, than they are today. I mean, the cost of, of Middle East oil is still at $10 a barrel. Okay? Uh, which means that when they were selling oil at 15 or 20 or 25 dollars a barrel, they were making a bundle of money. But now they're selling oil at 130 dollars a, a barrel, and and what they're doing this they're making uh, excess profits, uh, while at the same time, in effect, uh, damaging entire areas of industrial and uh, and agricultural production, and of course impoverishing people because. Ultimately, that still comes out of people's pockets, uh, the, the increased cost in fuel. But it, I think peak oil, from my point of view, peak oil is mistaken. Uh, it's an interesting debate. Uh, it has to be, I think it has to be uh, discussed in context. But right at this moment, there's no scarcity of oil and gas. And, and uh, even if there were scarcity of oil and gas, this does not justify the hikes in, in the price of fuel, which are the result of, A, the ability of, of uh, both the oil companies as well as financial institutions to manipulate the price on the major exchanges, but also the complicity of government uh, in saying, well, we don't regulate the price of fuel or transportation or oil or, or heating oil. Uh, that it has to be left to the free market. It's, it's a sad state of affairs because historically, under capitalism and the welfare state, certain basic commodities were regulated. The price of milk, the price of bread, the price of fuel, uh, the price of electricity. Uh, why? Because those are essential commodities which enter into the basket of consumer necessities they needed for survival of human beings on this planet. It feels like the system is cannibalizing itself. How, how much longer can this go on before a total collapse? That's a very difficult question. I, I mean, the, one of the major sources of instability in, in, the, uh, in the financial system is this uh, market for derivatives, hedge funds and, and, and derivatives, which is in the trillions, and um, when that collapses, it could shake the entire financial system. Uh, we're having a meltdown of uh, financial markets, um, which uh, then leads uh, speculators into um, into investing in in, uh, in grain and and oil as a as uh, as an alternative to to other forms of speculation, 
And the end result is uh, is the end result of this process is a worldwide um, impoverishment of millions of people. And we are, I would say that we are, we are most probably in living through the most serious crisis in modern history, far more serious than than uh, anything which um, occurred, let's say, in the 1930s. This is a far more serious crisis than the Great Depression. Uh, on the other hand, I think um, if we look at the if we look at the economic crisis alongside an understanding of the military agenda, we because we're not only dealing with a collapse in in uh, in financial markets, uh, rising price of fuel and 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 uh, and uh, food staples, we're dealing with uh, uh, with a military agenda uh, which is. Uh, characterized by uh, a very clear commitment to uh, expanding the U.S. sphere of interest uh, around the world. It's, it's a war of global domination. If we look at military documents, it's, it's quite clear that this is a war of conquest. Uh, it's linked up to, uh, to the economic crisis in, in that the war is also intent upon gaining control over uh, vast energy resources in the Middle East and Central Asia, a region which encompasses approximately, which includes approximately 60% of the global reserves of, of oil and natural gas, so that uh, Iraq, Iran, uh, of course, are, are crucial uh, in, because uh, each of these countries uh, has five times more oil reserves than the United States of America. Iran is, is the second largest um, in terms of its oil and gas reserves after Saudi Arabia. It has 10% of, of total oil and gas reserves. The United States has less than 2%. Uh, Western countries taken together, namely the United States, uh, Canada, uh, Australia, the United Kingdom, Norway, and Denmark, which are the major Western oil countries, they have something of the order of 4%. If we exclude the tar sands, the Canadian tar sands, potentially Canada is a, is a it could, if those tar sands become, uh, become viable, and they are becoming viable, uh, then Canada would be one of the major oil reserve countries. But in terms of classical crude, uh, the Western countries at the moment have something of the order four percent, but all of this is is tied in together. I mean, we have a war, we have a military agenda, we have spiraling uh, a spiraling defense budget, which at this stage is is two times the GDP of the Russian Federation. Uh, it's a trillion dollar defense budget. Uh, if we if we include the regular budget plus. Uh, the, the cost associated with, uh, with the Iraqi war, uh, not to mention all the black budgets, the budgets of the CIA, which are not always published and, and known, but we're dealing with, we're dealing with uh, defense and related expenditures in excess of $1 trillion per annum. And this is, of course, at the expense of the civilian economy, of social programs, and uh, it is dominated... This military agenda and budget is dominated by the, the so-called defense contractors, the big five, 
which are Northrop Grunman, Boeing, Raytheon, uh, General Dynamics, and Lockheed Martin. Lockheed Martin is the largest defense contractor or, or war contractor. And that is in alliance with British Aerospace Systems Corporation, which is Britain's largest defense contractor. Then you have the Anglo-American oil companies with British Petroleum in the lead, which is now an Anglo-American company through the merger of BP with the American Oil Company and Atlantic Richfield Corporation to create the largest giant a corporate giant in the oil industry. So all of those factors are tied in together because at the same time as, as British Petroleum has interest in the military agenda in the Middle East, they're also speculating on the London energy market and they're pushing up the oil price. Okay? And so it, it serves their interest that, well, it serves their speculative interest that there is a war or at least there's uncertainty with regard to what's happening in the Middle East, because this creates a situation which favors increased oil prices. If we, if we had peace in the Middle East, no doubt the oil price would be down at 30 or $40 a barrel. Now, in addition to, in addition to fuel and food price manipulation, there's also the resource of water, could, could you talk about the privatization of water resources? Now, the, the country of Iraq was not just rich in oil. It's rich in water as well, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, the, the land of two rivers, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, it's a land of tremendous water reserves, as is the Valley of the Nile as well. I mean, these are, these are very important water reserves, and water is a strategic resource. The mechanism in water is, uh, is somewhat different to that in, let's say, fuel and food, because water is not a quoted commodity on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, for instance. People don't transact internationally for obvious reasons in water for delivery in, you know, in three months. There's no futures market for, for water as there is for grain or, or fuel. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the price of water is spiraling uh, because water is now being privatized. And we're talking about water for, for human consumption, but we're also talking about water for agriculture, water for, for various productive activities. And the absence of regulation as far as water is concerned, the governments are, are, are more or less withdrawn from any kind of, of role in regulating the price of water or ensuring that water is uh, made available free to citizens. Uh, uh, and, and the way it really functions is that, uh, that the municipal water system collapses uh, if we're talking about urban water distribution due to uh, you know, constraints on state budgets, uh, the debts which affect municipalities across America and, and around the world, so they don't have enough money to maintain their, their public water systems, and then they're pressured into privatizing those public water systems, or at least granting the management uh, to uh, large-scale water companies which then will get a long-term lease and, in effect, become the owners of, of, the, of the municipal water system. Okay? So that that is happening uh, at this moment uh, 
we have a situation where uh, a handful of of uh, of companies uh, are gaining control over water resources. More specifically, uh, we're dealing with um, Suez and Veolia, uh, which are French companies. Uh, they're, they're perhaps the most important. We're also dealing with uh, Bechtel, United Utilities, Thames Water in Germany's R- RWE, uh, which are acquiring the control and the ownership over public water utilities and waste management worldwide. Uh, Suez and Veolia hold approximately 70% of the privatized water systems around the world. And then you have, um, you have the World Bank, which, of course, supports that process. They say it's far more efficient to have private companies uh, uh, manage the water system and so on and so forth. But again, when, uh, when people have to buy, impoverished people have to buy water for their daily consumption, this uh, converts itself into uh, an instrument of, of poverty creation uh, because uh, clean water is obviously important for consumption. I should mention that as far as uh, as drinking water is concerned, you have another process which is parallel to this privatization of, of public uh, water utilities. You have an extensive market for bottled water, uh, which has been appropriated by a handful of corporations, including Coca-Cola, Danone, the European country, Nestle, the Swiss-based uh, multinational, and Pepsi-Cola. Now, these companies, what do they do? They take uh, tap water uh, and they sell it back to, <laughs> to uh, people at a very high price. Essentially, that's what they do. And uh, they work hand-in-glove with, uh, with um, the water utility companies. Uh, so uh, what we have is a situation where water is being, is being privatized the next phase, but in fact, this next phase has already started, is that these water companies will take control of the actual uh, sources of water, namely the rivers, the, the groundwater, and so on. And then, of course, a fundamental means of survival becomes a commodity or is already a commodity. Now, if you look at the issue in relation to farmers, in some countries, particularly in semi-arid countries, water, of course, is very, very important. And um, uh, irrigation is very important. And when water becomes privatized, well, then uh, it's only a handful of, of rich farmers that will be able to pay for the water so that the tendency, will, the tendency in agriculture is that the privatization of water is, will lead to greater concentration of land, the bankruptcy of small farmers. We saw it in Somalia. It was in the early 80s, early to late 80s, where uh, the World Bank went in with a program of water privatization where they insisted on even charging for public water. And and what happened in a semi-arid region is that agriculture went, agriculture was destroyed and, and and uh, so was the livestock industry destroyed. I'm speaking with Professor of Economics, Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show, The Global Food and Fuel Crisis. I'm Bonnie Faulkner.
This is Guns and Butter. How can some of this be turned around? Let's let's say specifically with regard to the financial speculation. Can these markets be re-regulated? How could that be done? I have I have uh, I have mentioned this several times because uh, we've just had a major conference in Rome with regard to the food situation. Okay, and what they're saying in Rome is that uh, you can't do anything uh, because of supply and demand. It's a totally absurd uh, argument. Um, It's perfectly feasible to reverse uh, the movement of food prices on the commodity exchanges through regulation. And how is it done? By freezing certain types of speculative transactions. In other words, excluding, and this is, not a, this is not a radical revolutionary measure, it's simply saying we will prohibit speculative trade in certain types of commodities, or we will regulate the price, and um, we will um, intervene in, in, these, in these commodity markets with a view to ensuring the livelihood of millions of people around the world. That can be done. And it would be the most effective uh, measure in reversing the tide as far as uh, the millions of people who have been precipitated into famine conditions around the world. In other words, uh, regulating speculative markets, identifying the major actors in speculative trade, Uh, I'll mention some of these speculative actors because they're they're fairly well documented. As far as the the speculative trade in crude oil, uh, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, British Petroleum, Deutsche Bank, Société Générale, Bank of America, and Switzerland's Mercuria, according to recent investigation, these are among the major actors in the speculative trade in, in crude oil. They're not the only ones, but they're among some of the major ones. As far as food prices, Monsanto, Syngenta, Aventis, DuPont, Dow Chemical, Cargill, and Arch Daniel Midland. I should say that Cargill and Arch Daniel Midland control a large share of the market for, for corn worldwide. Okay? And, and uh, they, they more or less decide the price themselves. There's, there's absolutely no regulation And why is there no regulation? Because these big companies control the politicians. So what we really need is to establish, to have decisions at the political level which protect the rights of citizens and which go against the interests of these large companies. It's not something which is going to come around very easily, okay? Because it has to do with basic fundamental power relations within society. But what it does mean, I think, and that's very important, is that people will have to start targeting these companies. Okay? The, well, there are not many of them. There are a handful of companies uh, in the oil industry, in the food industry, in water, um, and, 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 of course, the military-industrial complex. Uh, we have to target these companies, and we have to dismantle their power apparatus that they ultimately determine. They are the governments of this the people in the White House, 
uh, whether you know whether it's a Democrat or Republican, it doesn't really. Uh, there they may be certainly that differences, but in in all cases, the head of state, the president of the United States, the commander in chief, are in a sense they are proxies. They do not act against these corporate interests. These corporate interests exert exert uh, influence on on the political process. And that is something we have to reverse. It's to restore the regulatory functions of the state. Um, that's, I mean, that's not a revolution in any regard, but it's something which people, uh, I, I think, should become fully aware that, that the state as it exists today is controlled by large corporations. And in fact, it is no, it is no longer a government per se. It is a proxy uh, of, uh, of these corporations. You know, when people talk about world government, it seems like what uh, is really happening is that if there is such a thing as a world government, it's a world government of a handful of corporations that you have listed at the end of your most recent article, The Global Crisis, Food, Water, and Fuel, Three Fundamental Necessities of Life in Jeopardy. And I noticed when I read this article that the number of these corporations, be they financial, uh, agricultural, military, you can pretty much count them on the fingers of both hands. Exactly. Certainly. You, you can, uh, you can um, identify the big oil companies. They're not that many. Uh, they're, well, there are a lot of oil companies when you start to go through the whole range. But if you look at those which pull the strings, uh, uh, British Petroleum, Exxon Mobil, uh, Chevron Texaco, uh, uh, you know, the, the handful of corporations. Uh, uh, the same thing is true in, in, the, in the area of, uh, of food or in the area of finance. Uh, if we're looking at the military-industrial complex, again, a handful of companies which are operating behind the scenes. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't other companies as well, but uh, uh, if we could start to identify the power relationships of these companies and their links to politicians and, and the role that they exert over, over constitutional process, uh, I think that is very, very important. And I, I think we also have to address the media because the media is also a corporate giant. We're, we're dealing with a handful of media companies which uh, control the way in which these realities are perceived and understood. The media is the fifth column of these, of these big companies. Uh, and, of course, it's a, they're very powerful in their own right. They will tell you, uh, the causes of the food crisis, the causes of the oil crisis. They will also inform you on the, the rationale of the, of the war on terrorism, upholding all the lies of the Bush administration with regard to 9-11 and so on. So, again, yes, I would say there probably, uh, I identified in this article three areas. Of course, this is a partial analysis um, the trade in crude oil and petroleum products and fuel, the privatization of water, uh, food prices, those three areas, we'd have to add to that uh, the military-industrial complex uh, made up of the, the big uh, corporate uh, 
Giants, Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, General Dynamics, British Aerospace Systems Corporation. And then we'd also have to look at, uh, uh, at a whole series of other companies which play a, a major role in, in uh, corporate policy. Uh, of course, the big Wall Street uh, financial institutions, the speculators, the insurance companies, the insurance companies as well as the, the, the health uh, uh, services conglomerates, the biotech companies, which are tied into agribusiness and the pharmaceutical industry, but which also produce weapons, chemical and, and, and biological weapons. Uh, but when you, when you boil it down, you're not talking about a large number of companies. Uh, uh, so that, uh, in effect, this is something which can be addressed in the understanding and perception that people have on, on this particular crisis that we are living through and and the problem when we when people live through a crisis they don't necessarily analyze it from outside we can ourselves analyze the great depression and say well that was a very serious crisis and unemployment was so much we're doing it 30 years later but when the great depression occurred or started in 1929 it was only in the mid-30s that people said yes we're in a an economic recession. Why? Because there was camouflage by the, by the media, by the by the economists, and so on. It's well documented in John Kenneth Galbraith's uh, analysis of the Great Crash, how how they managed to camouflage the the crisis until it became so obvious with you know millions of people unemployed. Well, that's precisely what we're doing today. They're saying no, the world is 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 safe. Uh, uh, we, uh, we're waging a war against bin Laden, uh, and uh, the crisis in financial markets is temporary. There might be a recession next year in the third quarter. All this tends to, to undermine an understanding uh, of what I think constitutes the most serious economic and social crisis in modern history, because it is... A, it is uh, characterized by, by a dramatic collapse in living standards worldwide, not as a result of lack of resources or scarcity on the one hand, and it is characterized also by a war without borders, a military agenda, uh, using new types of weapons uh, where Nuclear weapons are considered to be safe for the surrounding civilian population because that is what the Pentagon is telling us. Um, where we are, we're no longer in a Cold War situation where nuclear weapons are a weapon of last resort. And if you look at all these different elements together, plus the lies and the falsehoods which permeat the media, I would say this is Again, I repeat, this is the most serious crisis in, in, uh, in modern history. Michel Chosodovsky, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be on your program. I've been speaking with Michel Chosodovsky. Today's show has been The Global Food and Fuel Crisis. Michel Chosadovsky is Professor of Economics at the University of Ottawa and Director of the Center for Research on Globalization 
an independent research and media group of writers, scholars, and activists. Based in Montreal, the Global Research webpage at www.globalresearch.ca publishes news articles, commentary, background research, and analysis on a broad range of issues. Josadowski is the author of The Globalization of Poverty, War and Globalization, The Truth Behind September 11th, and America's War on Terrorism. Today we focused on two of his most recent articles, Global Famine and the Global Crisis, Food, Water, and Fuel, Three Fundamental Necessities of Life in Jeopardy. The Center for Research on Globalization also hosts a weekly internet radio program, the Global Research News Hour on the Republic Broadcasting Network. The program airs Mondays from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Central Time. All shows are archived at www.republicbroadcasting.org. Guns and Butter is produced and edited by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. Our engineer is Bonnie Bone. Todd Fletcher contributed to today's program. To leave comments or order copies of the show, call 510-848-6767, extension 628. Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Our website, www.gunsandbutter.net, is under construction and will be back up soon. Times that we live in, G, and our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now, the question is are you ready for the real revolution, which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine. You dig what I'm saying? Now, if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand, and divided we will fall, because love conquers all. Trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying? Look what this idea.